Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome back to His Darker Materials, the podcast that goes episode by episode through the HBO BBC adaptation of Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. My name is Helen O'Hara and with me as always is my co-host Dave Corkery. Hi Helen, hello everyone. Hello, hello. And this episode will be covering season three, episode two of His Dark Materials. So we will be having spoilers throughout this podcast for episode two and everything previously through His Dark Materials. Uh, We will be avoiding book spoilers for further bits of the story but those might come up in our interviews, so do be warned. And we have a fantastic lineup of interview guests this season. Yeah, let's get into episode two. Did you enjoy this one? I did. I think this is um, a little bit like episode uh, one. It was uh, still just, as you said, moving the chess pieces uh, around. But I think a, lo- a few things have come to a head in particular. Uh, I think that the sort of main showdown in this episode was Lyra and Mrs. Coulter in the little German island. So all all the uh, all the parties end up there uh, at, at different times. But yeah, I, I thought good episode, exciting. Lots of, there were, I mean, there were angels fighting. Where else do you get that on TV? <laughs> I mean, supernatural, but that's basically, it's finished now. So that's basically it. Oh yes, yeah. you're a big supernatural fan, aren't you? I am, yeah. But yeah, no, I, I'd agree with it. I think it was uh, a really good episode. Practically everyone ends up on that island uh, at some point. So we should probably, I guess we start with the only person who doesn't, which is Mary Malone, who wasn't in last episode at all. No. So they, they did remind us that she existed, I think, in the in the sort of recap of everything. And she was referred to, not by name, but when they talk about a new serpent arising. So she has been cast in the role of the serpent by this by this sort of prophecy. There's, there, there's this prophecy that Lyra, our heroine, will become a new Eve. And Mary Malone, therefore, as the serpent, is presumably someone who's going to tempt somehow her tempt her. With an apple. With an apple or with knowledge <laughs> yeah. anyway. So that's an it's an interesting position to be in, especially for she's a she's a very nice lady, and she's, I think, an ex-nun. I think we know that already about her. And and yet we're being told she's kind of the root of all evil. So it's it's a it's an intriguing start for the character. Yeah, it's almost like you can't trust religious scripts <laughs> and prophecies. We don't really get much of her in this episode. We sort of see her still wandering and trekking through uh, through different worlds. Um, you know, mm-hmm. she's on the, a similar path to Will, also looking for Lyra. We sort of learn that she's in the same world in this episode that Agunwe is from, right? Um, the yes. same, you know, the temple is mentioned and there's these resistance fighters. And I think we, we get a little bit of satellite landscape shots of this world and it it's all seems very mossy. Right, and it's like overgrown. Yeah. It's always, it's post-apocalyptical yeah. almost. That's a, that's exactly right. It looks like you see those. Um, you know, you sometimes see. I don't know. 
listicles of, you know, amazing abandoned places that you didn't know existed kind of stuff. And it's always, you know, some Russian theme park or something that's been left for 50 <laughs> yeah. years or, or a town that was drowned by a dam and here's what it looks like now under 100 feet of water, you know, and, and it kind of, it does have that feel. It does have that that sort of abandoned, dilapidated feel, but still these drones patrolling the sky, still people looking for dissidents, essentially. Um, and, and those two girls, I thought that was a really interesting way of building on what we saw of Agunway's world last time. You know, they did reference the fact that this that the temple is trying to take away people's freedom of choice, that it is essentially severing people from their demons, even mm. though they're not external demons, as we saw before. So his eldest daughter, of course, had been made victim of that procedure. But then to hear these girls talk about Literally, women are not allowed to learn how to read. We're not allowed to do anything in this world. And of course, that's very much based in real human history, because we do a lot of that historically. But I thought that was a really uh, interesting way of explaining why the temple might be bad. You know, I think that they're not taking it on faith that you will just reject all authority. They're, They're explaining, no... This is a bad authority. It is not good. Yeah, and I, uh, and I like that the, you know, these pa- the, these parallels are very deliberate, aren't they? The the Philip Pullman puts in, you know, well, ob- obviously he's making a broader statement about our church and re- our churches in our world and re- and religions, but they uh, every world we encounter, and we're basically told this through exposition that that the authority is influencing, you know, that is their their goal. The angel himself says it in this episode, right? And he will lead a permanent inquisition into every world and every being until they understand complete obedience. And and you know, God or the the authority in this instance has has its vessels and its administrators of this uh, goal on on each world. And yeah, and it tends to be a similar sort of victims. Uh, it tends, you know, it tends to yeah. And Mrs. It's no different in Mrs. Coulter's world. You know, she was the only woman to be able to rise above that persecution. Yes, exactly. And and even then she knows she kind of essentially walks a tightrope that she's she's always kind of a little bit suspect simply because of that, never mind anything else in yeah. her past. And you know, there's been some stuff in her past that might make a person wary of her. But yeah, I thought <laughs> oh, that was... look, we've all killed a few kids every now and then or <laughs> taken their souls away, right? <laughs> but but yeah, I thought that it was just a nice nice little point to make. And it also just showed again Mary's kind of warmth and niceness and yeah. and her and her ability to kind of take in information and think about it and process it you can see there's a there's something going on there she's putting pieces together she's kind of trying to to figure things out in this new multiverse that she finds herself in so uh, and she we also see her you know specifically like using the i ching like casting the arrow stocks and reading the results and and trying to figure out her next move so there's a nice like it, her journey isn't isn't on screen a lot, as you say, but there is a it, it is being developed. We are being reminded that she is on this journey, that she's learning things, that she's studying things as she goes. And I thought it was a really efficiently done in a very short amount of time. Yeah, very much so. Doctor Malone in the Multiverse of Madness. <laughs> Would watch, yes. Well, let's check in with Will. So, Will the Angel and the Polar Bear. <laughs> oh, I've heard that one. Yeah, they walk into a bar. <laughs> they walk through a door into another world. And uh, they they've identified the, the the town where Lyra is, um, mm-hmm. and they meet Amma, and Amma at this stage has 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 figured it out, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> She's like, oh, I don't think this is okay. <laughs> yeah, because she she basically saw you know Lyra's escape attempt, 
and so knows that Mrs. Coulter is not quite as as um, kind as she seems. I think she's got that great line of "No mother could be so cruel," and Will goes, "Yeah, this one could. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, not, yeah. It's not a problem." <laughs> a plan hatches, and they uh, and it, it ultimately ends in, in a, a few good scenes. I think with Will. Will has that encounter with Mrs. Coulter first, where again she tries this deception move on him and is very convincing offers him a cup of tea and i'm thinking like don't drink that tea don't drink the tea but he was smart enough not to do that but i think will again you know like we said in the last episode you know strat he's strategizing here he sees he sees what's up he knows not to trust her he's not lulled by you know her niceties and he forms a plan outside of that so he uh sneaks in separately as another player enters right father father gomez has also found Lyra and Mrs. Coulter. Yeah, so he's used his um, little insect, his bugging device, let's call it, to go out and find, uh, track Lyra and Mrs. Coulter down. There was that really, you know, creepy scene of him basically sent using, uh, I think it was Lyra's dress to kind of tune the insect in and then yeah. sort of sending off. Oh, super creepy. But yeah, so it means everybody's basically arriving on this, I think, tiny island almost at the same time. So you've got the Magisterium airships full of basically crack SWAT troops coming in. You've got Will and Yorick and Balthamos coming in by boat. You've got Mrs. Coulter waiting there with Lyra. You've got even Asriel, when he finds out what's happening via Barouche, you know, setting off in the intention craft for the same spot. So like, Everything's converging on this tiny island in the middle of the German Ocean. I'm assuming that's the Atlantic. I don't know. And, <laughs> it's uh, the German Ocean. Yeah. It's the German Ocean, <laughs> yeah. you know, the German Ocean. Uh, <laughs> and it is like that is that does make for quite an exciting feeling confrontation. You know, everybody coming up. And I love how Mrs. Coulter is playing all this. So she said, I think it was last episode, almost near the end of last episode, I thought he'd be here by now, I think is her line. And you're not quite sure, does she mean Asriel? Does she mean Will? Like, who is she talking about? Yeah, it could um, be any of them. It could be any of them. And it seems here that she means Will. Yeah. 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 I think she was ba she's banking on Will to find Lyra, and then she intends to recruit him as an ally because she has acknowledged the power that, that he wields, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's his strength, her guile, and Lyra's bravery that, he, good that she names as their, yeah, as their yeah. sort of defining characteristics, which is... I think fair. Um and and I love how he is he's not taken in by her I don't think at any point but he is slightly fascinated by her and it's not clear you know there might be a little bit of that you know he's an adolescent man and she's very beautiful but I think it's more she begins to kind of convince him she's a mother and that she cares about Lara as a mother and I think that brings up a lot of issues yeah. in his own life. I think she I well here's the thing here's the question I guess for us and the big question is you know is she being genuine about i think because i kind of think she it's just so hard to deal with her but i think she i think she, some of what she's saying is true i think she is deciding now or has decided i want to be a mother to lyra and she loves her but i think she is just so inherently broken as a as a person and has been broken by the world and has broken herself and with her relationship to her own soul that she does not know how to do that. So I think her intentions are, as she says, I think her methods are the problem. And But there's manipulation at every step of the way. So she she is manipulating Will. Will, I think Will 
is I think he is a little somewhat convinced by it, but I think he's playing her as well, clearly, right? Because he's he as we said, he's He's str- too wary. Yeah. He's too wary to be taken in. He yeah. is. And and he's just telling her what she wants to hear. And I think kind of convinces her a bit, right? You know, he kind of leaves it like, okay, I'm gonna leave Lyra with you. She's safe. That's great. Okay, bye. And I think she's relatively convinced by that. Yeah, she seems genuinely taken aback. It's like, wait, sorry, I'm sorry, you're saying no to me? I Are thought you, he was uh, going to uh, stay. Yeah. Yeah. Like what? Player got played. Player got played. But I think it is, I think, I agree with you. I think she she does now have feelings for Lyra and she wants to keep her safe. I mean, she has that great line about, you know, three times she's been in danger and three times I've saved her. And And so there is an element of wanting to keep her safe, but it's almost like she's so bad at loving because she has no experience or practice at it, that it's it's almost a kind of possessive love. Like she she wants to keep Lyra and she wants to keep her safe, possibly in that order. And she knows that Lyra won't be on board with that plan. So she's totally fine with keeping her in a coma to avoid, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. do you know what I mean? To Rather than attempting to win her over because she's like, well, she's my daughter. I'm, I'm definitely not going to be able to win her over. So we're not, that's a non-starter. So I'm just going to keep her unconscious. And I think there's an element of if she was able to win Will over, maybe then there's a way to wake Lyra up and not have her immediately scarp her. Yeah, I think it's a good play. You know? but uh... It's not a bad play. It's probably the only play, actually. Who else would Lyra trust? Well, exactly. But unfortunately, she has she's been so awful in Will's presence previously that uh, you know he he doesn't he doesn't buy it. Yeah. So she's left it then in the position where Will's left. She doesn't have the protection she sought after, and the Magisterium are on her doorstep, right? So then she takes matters into her demon's hand and uh, <laughs> <laughs> bashes herself and hits herself over the head, in the with head a rock. as you do. And I thought this was another interesting moment on the beach with Father Gomez. This battle of and the, the two the two of them played this so well the actors the battle of the wills here right it's it's a deceptor playing throwing her cards out there and seeing if he's gonna take the bait and he's but he's a you know like you said before he's he's calm and collected and inquisitive you know uh, and he sort of just cocks the eyebrow and and you know doesn't buy it i'll be taking lyra now <laughs> it's like nice try he's almost convinced and then he he says basically I'm going to check the house anyway, and she flinches to block his path. Yes, it's a tiny little move. She flinches to block his path, and he's like, "Ah, you're kidding! <laughs> gotcha. I got you now." <laughs> and and so that's the moment where you know it, she she kind of loses, and I think that's another piece of evidence that it is a real. It is some kind of real feeling that she has for Lyra. It is something that is stronger than her ability to deceive people. Yeah. And and that's, you know, so that is kind of, I guess, parenthood at that moment. Yeah, nicely put. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's an imp- it's an impulse, isn't it? It's 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 a, re- a reaction. It's just like, exactly. like on a primordial level. Yeah. Uh, but she knocks him out with a stone in the end. There's a lot of no- lot of knocking <laughs> knocking around <laughs> the heads with stones in this episode. Yeah, I, I can't, I, you know, I, I don't know how hard she's hit him at this point. You know, we're not quite, quite clear. Um, yeah, is he dead? Is he dead? Um, we'll have to find out. But uh, we will. Uh, but uh, it's... I mean, their their scene together also is again. He's super chilling. He, Jamie Ward is, as far as I go, so chilling. He's like the Very kindest good. thing you could have done is just kill her. Yeah, you know, it's like, <laughs> so wow. chilling. Yeah, <laughs> dude. And I loved. He's so good because he he is. You know, I was, was reminded of um, Inglorious Bastards, right? And just this, this, just this, like very nice, calm. 
person in a room and just the tension that lies underneath that scene. And you know he's got an army outside as well. And I always, I always find that uh, really fascinating that that um, you know that that melding of military and church and how t- terrifying that is. Because as it would be in in real life, it's a terrifying combination. And just that visual again as well of him sitting on that like heli carrier, calmly reading a book with all these troops around him with guns. It's just, you know, it's really striking stuff. It, it really is because it, it's sort of the the capacity for a belief in a system, whether that's religious or political or whatever else, to completely override a more kind of profound fundamental morality you know yeah because you're you're so convinced that your system is right that it makes you that makes anything you do ultimately right as well justified justifiable even if it's something obviously wrong like killing or stealing or whatever else so i I felt like that's it's a brilliant depiction of that in his character and and yeah it's so chilling and you could just do your pre-penance and you could just you know So, you know, it's all good. (laughs) It's, It's so sensibly set up. Okay, interview time again. So Helen got to sit down with actor James McAvoy, who, of course, plays Lord Asriel. And uh, as always, there are some sort of vaguey book spoilers here. So if you haven't read the books and you want to stay completely fresh, maybe just come back here after you've watched all of the show and enjoy. Uh, hello, James. How um, interesting to see uh, Azrael back this season, uh, kind of going commando a little bit. How was that? Um, well, you know, uh, <laughs> I have to buy my dinner before I tell you the real answer, whether it was truly commando. Yeah, it was good. It was really good. He's gone from that sort of kind of Edwardian inventor, adventurer, sort of British, English, Indiana Jones wannabe kind of figure to a warlord, really, to a kind of, to the soldier. He's always had a little bit of military in him, but he's definitely like embraced that this time. He's been talking up a big game about wanting to bring the fight to the kingdom of heaven, to build a republic in their face and bring it to them for such a long time. Uh, it's just great to finally actually do that. So when we were kind of coming up with costume and stuff, there was a <laughs> there was a big push to just put me in what I was in in the first season because it went down rather well apparently. Like my knitwear was a thing, but I was quite adamant that he looked like a soldier and. And even if it's a kid, like a family show and you can't be shooting people all the time, guys got to be walking about with weapons and like they've got to be under threat the whole time. They've got to be waiting. They've got to be looking at the sky the whole time, thinking it's something coming, it's something coming. So that that feeling of war was important, and he had to look like war. But how was it to kind of play those family relationships this time? Because there, are, I think you, I feel like you've got more scenes with both Mrs. Coulter and with Lyra in this season. Nothing with Lyra, unfortunately. Um, of course, just talking I, about her. Yeah. yeah, Daphne and I don't get to um, to meet. In fact, Daphne, Lyra almost becomes like the Asriel figure in his life in book three because everybody's telling him she's coming, Eve, she's going to this and that. Next thing, I think it drives him fucking bonkers. It was it was great. Look, two things: getting to play opposite Ruth was fantastic because she's a, she's like uh, she's a top tier actor who a top tier actor what does that mean but she is you know she's great at acting yeah she's like one of the best you know and uh, so getting the bounce off her was brilliant getting trying to understand why he's so mean about Lyra he's really mean about Lyra in the books especially in the third book it kind of comes out of the blue a little bit in the third book the way that he's horrible about her trying to understand that really because it's not really explained as well why he's so 
like, all right, he's got bigger things, he's got bigger fish to fry. That's always been his thing. That's why he didn't take on real responsibility as her father. But um, but why is he so like hateful towards her uh, in the third book? So trying to figure that out and maybe feeling like it was about uh, a father's jealousy of their own children and being usurped by their vitality and youth. And here he is, he's trying to set himself up as Spartacus and he's going to emancipate all sentient beings, you know what I mean? But actually, he's been overshadowed by his fucking daughter, who he's ignored her entire life. And um, and even worse, this this woman, this diabolical harridan of a woman that he's desperately in love with, he can't have her. She doesn't want him. But she wants to be a fucking mum. And you're like, what? You could have the fucking heavens, but you want to be a mum? And it, I think it drives him bonkers. And, you know, that's really his, her journey Ruth's journey throughout the whole three seasons is from a me like apex predator bad guy to to a parent. It's really fun to play somebody who is so resistant to being a father and yet still firmly placing himself anyway in the camp of I'm a good guy. Really like really conflicting positions to take in the audience's minds there as well, you know, because you are setting him up as a good guy a lot of the time. But you can't ignore the fact that he's a kid killer. You can't ignore the fact that he's the world's worst father. And you can't ignore the fact that his ego is bigger than than Yorick Bjornesson. I've always wondered, I, mean, I think you're, and I say this with love, a nerd, um, because uh, you've been in adaptations of most of my favourite books, whatever. Uh, you once, I think, accepted an Empire Award by, say, by n- noticing that you got it from the CAG, because it was Jamie Bamber who gave it to you. Um, <laughs> So yeah. what you know was this one of the dream roles? Is this is this sort of on the list with with Leto Atreides and um, yeah. Mr. Tumnus? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what else is on the list? Oh God! Do you know what? I loved the Dresden Files when I was younger. Uh, I'm not Harry Dresden though. I'm definitely not him because he's he's got to be like fucking seven foot two. He's or seven somewhere. foot tall. Yeah. He's, <laughs> there's tons. I mean, I remember sitting in a pub with my mate Ross when we were still at drama school. And we didn't even get auditioned for Lord of the Rings, but just as both of us sitting there, um, just like gutted that like the best story in the world is, is being told. And we never even got to audition for it because we were still in acting school, you know what I mean? There's loads, man. I love, um, you know, the Bobbyverse. Like that stuff's brilliant. I love all that. Uh, there's tons, man. There's tons. There's just too much. I can't even think right now. But there is, I mean, I don't stop with sci-fi. I've stopped with fantasy a little bit because it just, it can get a bit too, and there's, still great, there's still great fantasy out there, but it can just sometimes get a bit uh, not as character driven as something like His Dark Materials, do you know what I mean? But then again, I don't really put His Dark Materials, Pullman and His Dark Materials into the realm of just fantasy. It's, it's more than that, you know? But sci-fi, I, I haven't really stopped with sci-fi really, and I don't imagine I will. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, Lord Asriel and the Republic that he's set up up on a hill. So we get we get a, a deeper look at it now in this episode, don't we? In the setup, we meet his council. He's got uh, he's got Queen Ruta is back. Yep, back, back, back. We've got Ogunwe now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got uh, the Fairy King. What's his name? <laughs> Lord Roke, the Galavespian. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> we see sort of, I think, as, as we said last time, you know, it's a, it's a guerrilla warfare military camp aesthetic. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? They haven't gone for the sort of, you know, jungle or even forest setup. Like, they want you to be able to see this. And I think that, again, 
that that fits the man's character. He's not going to be hiding under tree cover from angels. Yeah. I think. I mean, there's probably an element of it's not going to fool anybody. So why bother? So let's just sit here in the sunlight, provoking the authority with our very presence on top of a hill. It's arrogance as well, isn't it? It is arrogance. Yeah, yeah it's absolutely yeah. arrogance. It's interesting, like his his counsels, because Agunwa is still very wary of him and is still not quite convinced by this dude. Okay, he's now convinced that other worlds exist. He's come through into a different world. But you know, he's still kind of he's still kind of sounding things out. He has those conversations with with Rudiscadi about, you know, do we really trust this guy? Do we think he's gonna last the course? You know, is he gonna compromise at the last minute? And she's like, lol, no, he's never compromised in his life. That's definitely not gonna happen. <laughs> but you know, it's it's a nice little bit of it, it. It convinces you more that he's a strategist. That he is he's feeling things out. He's like, okay, I admire the camp. This seems to be set up. This seems legit. But I still want to talk to your commanders and make sure you're legit. Yeah, exactly. He's bought. He's bought. Definitely bought into the cause. I think he's not quite bought into the man yet. And I think this is where you know they they differ as characters, right? Because we meet a Gunway in the last episode. He's willing to walk away from everything Azrael is saying for his daughter, and he's saying, "I've got you know, I've got I've got my youngest daughter, and I'm sticking by my eldest daughter, even after everything they've done to her." And I got I I can't do this. Whereas we know Azrael does not give two two craps about <laughs> about Lyra and is just still referring to her as an inconvenience, right? She's just somebody who just keeps pesky, just keeps coming up. So I think that that's a very fundamental moral difference between these two people. Azrael, like his enemy, is a zealot, and he is you know he has no time for uh, he will sacrifice, you know. A, a young boy to get you know, Roger to get what he needs. He'll sacrifice his own blood. And we see in this episode, you know, he's not afraid to commit torture to get what he needs. And there's a sort of a, there's a real cruelty to, to him and um, mixed with that arrogance. And he's almost enjoying it, isn't he? Yeah. And and you wonder, I, I kind of wondered uh, rewatching this, like how much is that sort of, there, there's an element of that, cruelty which is almost like a, a a scientist's amorality that's a scientist sort of going well i think i figured out how to weaponize dust let's find out shall we let's do an experiment and there's almost like he's he's watching dispassionately to a degree but then selmaria has to call him back to himself and go okay that's enough torture now mm. so you know you wonder is he letting it go on because he's getting distracted by the process or because he's actively enjoying the pain. And I think there might be a little bit of both, if you're honest. I think, I think, so. I think there's a bit of, yeah. I think there is cruelty there. I also love, and I think, you know, we're beginning to see it a bit this episode, that he is just, there's a fundamentally, like, what do you mean people are talking about Lyra? Um, Hello, I'm here. Why aren't people talking about me? <laughs> you know, yeah. He's like, why does my daughter's name keep coming up? She's irrelevant. So what, you know, I don't understand what's happening here. So it's it's a it's a really interesting beat for him to play. He is such an interesting character though, because like when you're watching the show and it's all laid out and you get the exposition dump and then Azriel says his goal and his intentions, it's so obvious. Well, as for me anyway, I'm like, well, he's the good guy, right? He's fighting for the right cause. He's fighting uh, against oppressive forces that that want to control everybody. But he's kind of so awful in so many other ways in his callous disregard for Lyra, our protagonist, in his 
yeah, his, his sort of his cruelty and his malice, his egotism, his arrogance. That it, 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 it he is such a fascinating character because he's hard to love mm. or back. He's hard to back, even when he's got the right cause. This is it exactly. I mean, and he openly says, "I killed an innocent boy." You know, he's he's not kind of holding back here. But he doesn't say it with an in, an ounce of regret. No, it, 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 it's matter of fact. It needed I, to be done, so I did it. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Um, uh, he acknowledges. I think that, that saying it acknowledges that it's not an, a desirable thing, but yes. you know that's what it is. I love, by the way, that the the captive angel who, whose name I think is Alarbus, but who I'm calling the Kurgan because he looks exactly like the character from Highlander. <laughs> yes, he does actually. He, does, he, he can read so much into again the the tiniest of responses that when he's talking about the authority. And the guy drops his eyes for a second. He's like, ah, got you. Gotcha. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, oh, well, yeah, I think, I guess there are some important um, exposition nuggets from that torture scene, right? So we learn that uh, the authority is not in control anymore. He has a, uh, a regent called Enoch, otherwise known as Metatron. I can't believe you dared which- say that name. <gasps> Enoch. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and the whole Metatron thing just uh, is so Transformers for me. It takes it always takes me right out. I did in the book as well. Uh, it's just so Transformers adjacent. Yes. And and I think, like you said, yeah, Lord Azrael clocks this straight away. He's spotted a chip in his enemy's armor, right? You know, that the, the whole thing is a bit of a charade. I wonder if he'd planned somehow to capture an angel anyway. We, he'd obviously built the cage, you know, um, it's like the Avengers building the cage for Hulk in the first movie. But, um, you know, he built the cage, but I, I don't know how he planned to get his enemy in there if, if you know, this guy hadn't literally landed in his lap. And I thought it was really interesting that uh, the Kurgan or Larbus, you know, kind of tries to sow some doubt in, in Zephania's mind. So she's the the head of his loyal angels. And he, he kind of tries to, like, set in a... A bit of doubt there, so a little bit of um, distrust between them, which is clever strategy, at least. Yeah, and and uh, we also learn that she, you know, he calls her the betrayer, and uh, and that she's been, you know, out of the loop for what a thousand years or something. So I I like all these little moments that sort of flesh out the angels a bit, and um, you know, just uh, hammers home how kind of infinite they are. Yeah, there's the, uh, there's a few moments like that, aren't there? There's there's Balthamus talking about how he and Baruch have been together for th- I think 400 years. Yes. Um, there's uh, Rudiscadi talking, comparing you know the lifetime of her to a human is like the lifetime of angels to her. It's a sort of magnitude, order of magnitude greater. And then there is yeah that that great conversation between Zephania and uh, the Kurgan, you know about um, the kingdom as we know it has already gone. This is our final rebellion. It's like this pretty metal. Yes. Good lines in there. <laughs> yeah. I also thought the um the the heartbreak of Baltimus uh, oh. exper- experience it were it was really sad and beautifully played. Yeah, it really was. I mean and, and again I think that you know you you need to have that. You need to have that feeling that there are stakes to all this, that it matters to people, that individuals are still a part of these kind of m- magic, massive causes that there's still like, like a kind of a angelic, but human level price to be paid that you might lo- lose your loved one, which feels like a more human concept than a maybe angelic one. Angels got feelings too, Angels it seems. Angels got feelings too, you know, it's not easy for them. I like that the uh, the cage was lined with adamantine. <laughs> yeah, I well, felt like... <laughs> I felt like it's McAvoy was, was pronouncing that very carefully, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So it wouldn't sound too Professor X. 
so good. But but also the fact that the you know despite torture, despite imprisonment, that uh, this this captive angel is still basically threatening, as you said earlier, the the permanent inquisition across all worlds. Like we're fed up of this whole free will and consciousness nonsense. We're just going to clamp down on all of that. Um, yeah. That's a, that's a pretty sinister, you know, thing for your bad guys to be promising. It's, it was a good line. It's awful stuff. But you know, still after all of that, after you know, uh, interrogation and and torture and uh, all of his planning and all of his power and all of his army building, Lord Azrael is the one who arrives late to the party. You know, everyone else is gone. So you you have Lyra finally being woken up being finally freed from Mrs Coulter's clutches uh, and escaping with Will and initially Emma as well but obviously she just goes home and hopefully will live happily ever after um you've Will killing again which we didn't talk about Will has to yeah. has to shoot a guy to get them out of there and you can see him instantly like freeze up panic and drop the gun so yeah, he's still not comfortable with it. Still not comfortable, and and still seems kind of haunted by his own capacity for violence. Very very unhappy with being told there's a warrior in him, you know. So it's an interesting kind of character moment there. So you have Mrs. Coulter unconscious. You have Father Gomez at least unconscious, and Azrael turns up, and it's basically like, oh well, the knife's gone, Lyra's gone. <laughs> Uh, all right, we go he's home totally again? unfazed by it all, isn't he? He's just like, oh well. Oh well, we so it. it goes. Oh well, I didn't care anyway. Right, back to the mission. Back to the mission. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we will be back to the mission next time for episode three. Yes, yeah, see you soon. His Darker Materials is a stripped media production. Our producer and editor is Maddie Searle. All our music was composed by John Dix. Our artwork was created by Sam Gilby. Our executive producers are Kobe Amanaka and Tom Wally. Our hosts are Helen O'Hara and myself, Dave Corkery. A big thank you to Ian Johnson at IJPR, to Bad Wolf and the BBC, and to all our guests for taking the time to chat to us. If you want to chat to us, you can do it at producers at stripped.media. You just heard a stripped media production.